it literally is a song to cheer you up if you're sad. And, you know, if you spend every day writing about the end of the world, there are some moments when you need some cheering up. I'm Nick Harcourt and welcome to another episode of The Sound of Success, the podcast where we talk with movers, shakers, and just plain cool people about music. Our guest today is one of the world's foremost environmentalists and experts on climate change, Bill McKibben. He's a regular contributor to The New Yorker and The Guardian and is the author of several books on the climate crisis, including his watershed work, The End of Nature, thought to be the first book written about global warming for a general audience. He's also the co-founder of 350.org, an international climate campaign that works in 188 countries around the world, as well as the founder of Third Act, an organization of people over the age of 60 dedicated to fighting climate change and backing up the great work of younger people and making good trouble of our own. I like the sound of that. Welcome to The Sound of Success, Bill McKibben. What a pleasure to be with you, Nick. This is a great show, and I'm I'm afraid I may bring the standard down a little bit, but it's a great pleasure to to join you. I think you're going to elevate it. Thank you so much, Bill. Now, I know you just got back from the 26th UN Climate Change Conference, or COP26, as it's called, in Glasgow, Scotland. You've been going to these for years. What was your takeaway this time around? Well, let me tell you first, my political takeaway, it's a certain sense, I think the process is beginning to play itself out. The UN doesn't have enough leverage. So, you know, countries show up like the US was supposed to show up and really make the difference. Joe Biden was going to come in with this build back better bill in his back pocket and slap it down on the table and say, hey, China, how do you like them apples? But Joe Manchin, biggest recipient of fossil fuel money in all of Washington, put the kibosh on that. And so Biden showed up naked, you know, and took the air out of the room. And it's hard to see how that changes. It's hard enough to mount pressure in America, though we've done a lot, the Green New Deal and, you know, Bernie and everybody else. But there's so many parts of the world now where it's very hard for us to push. You can't really organize in Russia, in China, in Brazil, in Turkey. The Greta Thunberg of India was in jail much of the year and they wouldn't give her a visa to come to Glasgow. So Mm. I left thinking, you know what? It's a good thing to keep up pressure on all these national governments, but we better really start pulling the other big lever too, the one marked money, and go after the banks, the asset managers, the insurance companies. We can reach them. Their money is in New York and uh, London and Los Angeles and Tokyo. It's in places where we can still organize, and they're big enough to influence the outcome of this story too. You know, obviously, the majority of uh, Americans, I think, uh, perhaps aware that that was going on, but how tuned in actually are they? Apart from hearing from the right-wing press that, you know, Biden arrived there and couldn't get anything done. Yeah, I don't know. I, I think people are not that tuned in, and that's sort of the problem. There's no story exactly. Uh, it's descended into a kind of welter of bureaucratic obscurantism. And so it's harder to kind of have a, an adventure, a quest, a through line for what we're trying to do here as we go about the task, if you think about it, of basically trying to stop burning things on the face of the earth and rely instead on the fact that the good Lord put a large bowl of burning gas 90 million miles away. And we now know how to make use of it for solar power and for wind power. And that's enough. So that's the story. And it's a cool, fascinating, powerful story. 
going up against the fossil fuel industry, but it doesn't really read that way. That's one of the reasons, you know, I, the things that made me happiest in Glasgow were one, seeing the young people do an amazing job of organizing, big march led by Greta Thunberg. Uh, second, hanging out with the writer, Kim Stanley Robinson, whose book, Ministry for the Future, he's a great science fiction novelist, probably the most important book about climate change in many years. And three, really the highlight of the whole thing was getting to MC a concert with Patti Smith on uh, the mm. first night of Glasgow. Her daughter, Jessie Paris Smith and friend Becky Foon have put together this Pathway to Paris thing that we've been doing these amazing concerts for years all over the world to raise money, but mostly to raise awareness. And that night, Patty was completely on fire and we had great guests, uh, Vanessa Nakate, who's kind of the Greta of Africa, young woman who's a remarkable spokesman, and Mohammed Nasheed, the president of the Maldives, a country that's going to go underwater if we don't get climate change under control, and a man who survived an assassination attempt earlier this year, 22 hours in surgery. It was good to be able to bring him out on stage for the applause he deserved. So that night, there was the sense of, man, we're on a mission here. And we've got to get that sense back. You, you mentioned young people present um, impressed you. And, and I know that you wrote an article in The, the Guardian recently uh, saying that the progress made at COP26 was thanks to activists' sustained fighting in, in recent years and not the work of governments. How much of a role do corporations have to play in this? Because I, it seems like we're beginning to see some corporate responsibility, or is that me just seeing what they want me to see? Well, a little of both. So let's divide corporations. The, the real problem, the real villain all along has been the fossil fuel industry. They remain recalcitrant. They've lied about climate change for 30 years. They're the reason people are confused about what's a straightforward scientific problem. And they continue to try and delay action. Witness Joe Manchin, their boy in D.C. Um, other corporations are starting to sort of bend in the right way, you know, a little bit, at least rhetorically. Places like Apple or Walmart or things talk a lot about change. And they're beginning to say, start having their delivery vehicles run on electric power, which is great. But when I talk to them, I always say, look. It's good to get your fleet of trucks going the right way. What we really need is your fleet of lobbyists going the right way. Right now, all the big companies are trying to weaken or beat this Build Back Better bill in Congress. They've all come out against it. They're lobbying against it because it raises the corporate tax rate a couple of points. Well, this is the only piece of climate legislation that the Congress has considered in 10 or 15 years. If it doesn't pass, we're not going to get another chance. It's completely irresponsible of these guys not to be backing it and backing it hard. You, you mentioned in that same article that I just uh, was talking about, you talked about activists not being able to push as hard as we need when governments are not doing their, their part. And the idea that the world's governments will simply do what needs to be done is just a fairy tale. I think that's a quote from you. What can folks be doing to help in reality around climate change and, and, and not in uh, fairy tales. It's important to do things in your own life. And I'm happy that I've got solar panels all over my roof and that's how I'm talking to you today and on and on. But we're past the point where the math of this works one solar panel at a time, one Tesla at a time, you know. The most important thing an individual can do is be a little less of an individual 
and join together with others in movements big enough to push, particularly these movements, I think now, that are taking on the financial system, that are taking on capital. So, you know, 350 uh, uh, or Third Act or all sorts of places are organizing, say, to, to push banks. My last trip out before the pandemic lockdown was to get arrested in D.C. in the lobby of the Chase Bank nearest the nation's capital as we kind of launched mm. this campaign against the largest funder of fossil fuels on earth. These guys have sent the fossil fuel industry a third of a trillion dollars since the Paris Climate Accords were signed. They didn't need Donald Trump sabotaging them. They were happy to do it themselves. And I think that we can put enough pressure on them to make them change because fossil fuel is, you know, it's a business for them, but it's not most of their business. Destroying the world's just kind of a sideline and we can wean them off it, you know, push them off it and they'll still have a business. So I, I think we got to try and hard and fast. So, so for an individual, it's, 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 it's not enough. It's no longer enough to, to recycle. You've right. got I mean, to get involved. This is the place where I have to be a little careful about saying, oh, if only you'd listen to me when, you know, <laughs> 30 years ago when I started writing about this, we had sure. lots of routes out of this mess. But when you wait 30 years and yeah, you get deeper, and windows have closed. deeper into the hole, you know, yeah, I mean, really, we're, we're down to very few exits. Let's talk about your work with Third Act, uh, which might get us into the music. I think mm -hmm. I've got the music questions ready. And I, it's an interesting uh, idea to activate boomers in particular around climate change protesting. This shouldn't be a movement shouldered just by younger generations, clearly. So what kind of good trouble is Third Act getting into lately? Well, so this, so this is a perfect example, this stuff we've just been talking about with banks and financial institutions of how we need old people backing up young people. In October, the, the, the American version of the high school climate movement, Fridays for the Future, they, they announced their big, long campaign to go against these banks. And that's great. But they asked us to come back them up right away. And we said, yes. And we've already had lots and lots of people out in the street. Because if you're a banker and you look around and you see some 19-year-olds out there, that's a threat in one way. You know, these guys know that the first credit card you take out is likely to be the one you keep for 40 years. So they don't want you hating on Chase or City or whatever. But if they see a bunch of 69-year-olds out there, they know they have a different kind of problem. 70% of the financial assets in America fairly or not, belong to the boomers and the silent generation above them. 5% belong to millennials. So, you know, we're such a big demographic that we can be an unovercomable political and economic block to change, or, and this is the hope, we can become agents of that change. People of this generation, in their first act, were around for profound cultural, social, political transformation. They may have participated in it. At least they bore witness to it. If their second act was somewhat more about consumerism and citizenship, perhaps, um, well, that water has flown beneath the bridge. So now we're coming into our third act. We've got the skills. We've got resources. Maybe we got grandkids. Time to put them to use. Time to recapture some of what was there at the beginning. And yeah, that includes, I think, a real role for, for music in bringing together people from this generation. We were uniquely blessed with music in an incredibly interesting, formative time too. And happily, a lot of those people are still alive, kicking and willing to help. 
you mentioned at the concert in, in Glasgow with Patti Smith. Are there more musicians of her generation who are beginning to step forward and say that they want to be in, in, involved in this and, you know, helping mount campaigns, help yep. mount concerts? Lots and lots. I mean, I'll tell you some of the people we've talked to. And, I, you know, in that same series that we've done over the years, the Pathway to Paris, it's been remarkable people have joined in. Uh, Flea, uh, Joan Baez, uh, Tom York, uh, on and on and on. We're having our first big nationwide call for third act, and we want to have some music in it. And happily, and here's a name you'll recognize. Do you remember the Chambers Brothers from the 60s, the kind of West Coast answer yeah. to fly into Family Stone kind of with yeah. a, one great hit. And it's an amazing song. Time has come today. Well, Lester Chambers is still alive, 81. And he's in a band called Moon Alice, formed by a bunch of people in the Bay Area. They're going to be playing when we do this first nationwide call. And hopefully we'll get to talk with him a little bit because there he was in the 60s. They, the Chambers brothers were deeply involved in the civil rights movement and the anti-war movement. They did a whole album with GIs who were uh, resisting the war in Vietnam. Um, that kind of goes around, comes around thing is really, really powerful. Well, listen, we're going to ask about your musical journey in just a moment's time. But as we wrap this part of the conversation up, if there's, and I'm serious, if there's anything I can do in any way to help as this moves forward in, you know, hosting or calling people or, you know, Absolutely, what, what, whatever I can do, please do. We will lean on you because you have the connections we need to get into the people we don't yet know in this world. And, and, and you'll know who's alive and kicking. <laughs> well, I'm beyond happy to, to help out. So we should talk uh, after, after this, anything I can do to help. Fantastic. Um, you know, living in Los Angeles, which is slowly melting in the summers. It's in my own interest. Okay. So. Let's jump into your music and your musical journey. Mm. What's your first musical memory, Bill? Well, I, since I've listened to your show, I had a sense you might ask this, and I was trying to think about that. You know, beyond the sort of like listening to my parents sing me to sleep at night, the first kind of popular music that I can sort of remember my father bringing home Abbey Road one night to play. It was like exciting and stuff. But the, mm. the first moment I really remember, we lived when I was in in elementary school, we lived in Canada for five years. And in, I think it must have been 1969, um, right before Christmas, so I would have been eight years old. My mother took us to the taping of a TV show. I'd never been to the taping of a TV show before, so that was exciting. That was quite a thrill, yeah. The host of this variety show on the CBC was a guy named Alex Trebek, who would later go on to fame and fortune. I've, I've heard of him, story. yeah. <laughs> but the, the musical guest, and this was 1969, was, uh, and I, I have no idea how we managed to just wander into this, but it was Dionne Warwick wow. singing her new hit, What Do You Get When You Fall in Love? And I can remember hearing it just like, wow, this is the, and I, I've been an utter starter for Burt Bacharach and Dionne Warwick and everything ever since. In fact, our, uh, the song that my wife and I am um, danced to at our wedding 34 years ago was say a little prayer. My wife has better musical taste than me. So she insisted on the Aretha Franklin version, but got I, I got to say, I love the Dionne Warwick version too. So, so Dionne Warwick is the, the first thing that really just sort of dug in there and how fortunate to be taken to that taping of that show. And I had no idea Alex Trebek got his, got his start doing 
doing stuff. He was like Canadian. That. He, he used to do quiz yeah. shows, you know, with the high school kids in Toronto and stuff. It was yeah, crazy. Maybe my next gig is a, is a quiz show, but perhaps I'll start by going. <laughs> there backwards. you go. <laughs> <laughs> what was the first music you bought with your own money? So it would have been a couple of years later, and it was ten or eleven, and so it would have been nineteen seventy one. And I I don't know. I, I, there were two albums that I can remember that I bought and that I loved and listened to over and over again. And they'll show you that I had reasonable taste, but undeveloped. So the two of them were there was a Diana Ross album called Surrender which was, you know, not the absolute prime Diana Ross. She'd kind of left the Supremes, but there was one great song on it. Can't give back the love I feel for you, which someone okay. else had recorded in the sixties, but she did a great version of it. That same, within a couple of months of that, Marvin Gaye, uh, uh, what's going on? Which for many, many years, I've always maintained and I've written this in, uh, it was, I, I thought the greatest record of all time. And it was important for me in retrospect because it also had the most important song about the environment that anyone's ever written. I mean, forget John Denver or whatever, uh, uh, the ecology song, Mercy, Mercy Me is, mm. you know, and it's a reminder that there was a moment when environmentalism and, you know, inner city political activism, civil rights were the same thing. Nobody thought it was weird that Marvin Gaye was writing about radiation underground and, and air pollution and so on. In, in subsequent years, the environmental movement would go on to become white. And it's only in the last 10 years that I think we've managed to sort of start changing that around. And now at the forefront of this work, again, we have people from really marginalized communities, but it, it's, it's, it always is a reminder to me of what a shame it was that, that we wasted those 30 years because Marvin Gaye was right there at that moment. But I love that. I, I still think that's my favorite record album of all time. So interestingly enough, your the first couple of albums you bought were, were Motown. Yeah. What about what about live music? Do you remember the first concert that you went to again without yeah, without then, your parents? You know, so I was growing up after Canada, we moved to the to the suburbs of Boston. And I was uh, I, you know, and I went to school in Boston. So I I, I think that it was probably a Boston band called The Neighborhoods, but I confess I, I I only have the sort of vague memories of it, and I don't think I don't think I really loved the music. I think I was I kind of liked the idea of you know concerts. And well, we we don't always get to you know necessarily pick the first concert we, we get right. to, or, or maybe it's not necessarily our favorite. What about the first concert that you do? You remember the first concert that you went to that just knocked you out? Well, I'll tell you a concert that I remember especially in retrospect, because I, by this time I was living in New York City and my first job out of college was writing the talk of the town column for the New Yorker. So I loved New York City and I got to go all over and look at everything. But early on, this would have been 1982 maybe, um, I went to an Elvis Costello concert out on the pier who I loved. And, but the reason I really remember it is I later discovered a couple of years later when I met my wife and we were talking about things, that she must have been at the same concert too. And so for, that one's always had special Fascinating. memories for me too. But I, that, that early Elvis Costello was, uh, I, I quite loved. I always like to ask people how they felt, how the music felt with the music coming at you directly from a stage and being surrounded by, I'm presuming hundreds, thousands of other yeah, yeah. people. Yeah, I, I remember too, it, it, that same year or the year after, 
uh, was one of the last really big concerts that they let happen in Central Park. And it was Diana Ross in Central Park. And it was amazing. She was amazing. And halfway through this amazing show, an amazing thunderstorm comes rolling through and there's hundreds of thousands of people running to get out of the park and away from the lightning and whatever else. So it was, I, I remember that as like, wow, this is, you know, since around time six, man. I mean, this is almost too much. Diana Ross brought down the house. You, you mentioned your wife a couple of times, Sue Halpern, and you were talking about dancing. And that sort of brings me to the next question, which is what do you listen to when you want to dance? Well, you know, I'm a, I'm a 60 something white dude. So, you know, dancing, you know, it's <laughs> well, me too, but come on. I mean, you know, <laughs> I have a deep fondness this. You'll think this is kind of funny, but I have a deep fondness for um, music that I had it was completely, you know, away from where I was, but from that Northern soul music of the sixties. Oh. And there's a bunch of people from there, but there's a song by the, the, the great Dobie Gray called out on the floor, um, play it sometime. It's almost impossible not to at least try to dance to it. And I really can't even quite picture this scene, but I can sort of imagine, uh, uh thousands of, uh, Englishman out on, you know, at Wigan Pier or something, loving uh, a, a Black American music and just trying to get with it. I feel, I feel like we need to give a little context for people listening who don't know what Northern Soul is or, or, or was, I guess it still is, but correct me if I get any of this wrong. I mean, I remember being a, a young uh, teenager when it was all happening in the UK. And I remember friends of mine going to Wigan, which was a, a casino, Wigan in the north of England, not far from Manchester. They had a huge casino there. And uh, it was basically black American soul music that was played, um, uh, recorded by hundreds of different people. You didn't have to be famous as, as, mm -hmm. as, as you just uh, noted, uh, but it was basically catering to the, to the British mod scene in particular. That's where the whole sort of Northern soul thing came about in the uh, early 70s. And, uh, and it's, it's terrific music. It's not the, you know, truly great sort of stacks, wool, hard edge. So it, it's a little glossier, but go, uh, you know, just stick on a Spotify playlist of Northern Soul sometime yeah. and just see yeah. it because it, it, it swings. There's no question. I should also point out that a lot of my friends went up there because there was a, a lot of things that you could get there that would make you dance all night. Uh, I think <laughs> there you the, go. <laughs> the, the things that, uh, that my friends used to get at the time were called blueies, but yeah, well, whatever the speed was of the, of the time, because this place would, would be open until like five, six yep. in the morning. And then that, that seems out. like the scene, as yeah. I say, I, I didn't get to participate, but I do like the music. Yeah. What do you listen to if you're feeling sad? That is the easiest question for me. My favorite song uh, of, and the song that gets me through a lot is a song that first recorded by a group called the Five Stair Steps, Ooh Child. There have been amazing versions of it by lots of people. I think maybe yeah. my favorite of all is the Nina Simone version, yeah. but there's a Dusty Springfield version that's amazing. And lately there's, a, I listen constantly often to start the day to the Kamasi Washington version of it, which is way worth sticking on your playlist, but it's a, it's, it literally is a song to cheer you up if you're sad. Uh, and you know, if you spend every day writing about the end of the world, there are some moments when you need some cheering up. 
need a little levity at the end of the day. Bill, I get it. Uh, there's, there's a great version of that by uh, a favorite artist of mine as well, Beth Orton, from uh, a couple of years ago, if you haven't checked that one I out. i go check that one out right away. That's good to know. So when Bill feels sad, he puts on Ooh Child. I got to remember that. That's a good one. Thank you. Do you have a favorite music video? This is a question that we actually added to our, our list after a few people talked about the importance of music videos to them. And I guess it's a generational thing, really. Well, if so you were around in the early 80s when MTV first started and until it sort of stopped playing videos, did you watch MTV at the time? And do you have only, a favorite video? Not only did I watch it, I did it. I told you that I was a Talk of the Town reporter at the New Yorker. I, was, I went over to do a story for the Talk of the Town. I think the day that MTV started, I walked down to their the studio to signed on because wow. nobody really, you know, it's like, whatever, it's just some new thing that's starting in Manhattan, you know, and, yeah. and it's like weird. And there's these VJs, whatever that is. And so I confess for me, the actual sitting and watching the videos always seemed a little like this takes a long time, right? You know, wh whatever, but I will tell you this, the greatest piece of music slash video I've ever seen came out this year. Um, and it was from that remarkable, remarkable documentary, Summer of Soul, uh, about the concerts in Harlem. Yeah, and there's about a five minute, there's about a five minute scene with two of my favorite artists of all time, Mahalia Jackson and Mavis Staples singing together. That is just, I mean, it is otherworldly. It, take the top of your head off. It is, it is the greatest five minutes of music there might ever have been, I think. And wow. And well, you, you, you captured you, on video. You, you've got me Googling as we're speaking to make sure I check in on that. Um, it is a great film. It, it, that is my favorite film of the year, Summer of Soul. And, and, and the performances are amazing, but that one in particular is just I mean, Mahalia Jackson towards the end of her career and Mavis Staples, you know, it, towards the start of hers and just yeah. the passing of the torch and this just passing the song back and forth, man, oh man. Well, that, uh, that movie is on my holiday viewing list. So I'll definitely be getting to it in the next couple of weeks for sure. Thank you for, for that. Do you have a, a recent musical discovery that you'd like to share with our audience? Do you go out and search for new music? I'll tell you what, my favorite thing in recent years, and this may not surprise you since you've by now acquired a sense of my taste, but the artist that I love and that I think sometimes, I mean, he does, everybody knows him and he wins Grammys, but he's not as famous as he should be, is Raphael Sadiq. And his album last year about the death of his brother from drug addiction, more or less, was these are the most, it's unbelievable, unbelievably powerful album. It's kind of wrenching and you can't listen to it every day because it's too much, but you can listen to Raphael Sadiq every day. He's astonishing. And I don't quite know why he's not on everybody's list all the time. Um, uh, to me, I kind of understand the cult of Prince, but I'd rather listen to Raphael Sadiq to tell you the truth on any given day. I think that album is called Jimmy Lee. Is, is it that is. Right? That's, it is. Uh, the, mo the most recent one. You, you've actually answered two questions in one there. So um, thanks for shortening the, the, uh, the <laughs> podcast. Uh, our next one was going to be, do you, do you have a band or an artist uh, you love, but they never quite got the big break they deserved? You mentioned Raphael Sadiq. Uh, is there anybody else that, uh, that you think should have gotten a little more uh, love from, uh, from the world than they did? No, I mean, 
you know, there's, there's so many people, but, but that's, he's a very good answer for, I, you know, I, I listen to those songs a lot, but his, his other stuff, which is very upbeat, stone rolling or heart attack. He's brilliant, brilliant, um, performer and songwriter. And I did meet, uh, and interview him, uh, probably seven or eight years ago and found him to be a genuinely, uh, uh, very, um, passionate person. About is he a, well, yeah, what's he like? Is he a sort of thoughtful guy in person? Yes, and... very, very, very thoughtful. Um, but you know, also aware that he's, you know, he's, he's good. He seems like he has one of those guys who has an encyclopedic musical yeah. memory, you know, can draw on things from huge reservoir stuff. Do you have a, a guilty pleasure? And, you know, we've been doing this, uh, I think this is episode 27, and we get lots of different uh, uh, answers for this. But um, to, to just sort of make sure you, kn you know what I'm talking about, like maybe somebody who um, you kind of like but haven't told anybody until you're about to tell us right now. So that's a good question. Let me tell you what I've been doing for third act every week. We send out this newsletter. And because I want to, because we're, because people above the age of 60 is actually a huge age range. It's like we have people who are a hundred who are part of this and people who are 60. So they're all, they're all kind of older, but that's a pretty big range. So I'm trying to kind of demo, bring, yeah. bring people together a little bit and music is one way. So the project that I started on was I took the um, year that was the median of those years. I said, what, what year would you have? been going to your high school prom if you were in the median of that group and it turned out to be 1959 and then i'm sort of working my way backward and forward a year at a time and, and talking a little bit about the music that's and it, it's interesting because of course back then are much more even than today our musical tastes were you know uh, like officially divided by race and things there was an r&b chart and a Very you know, so. billboard chart where but 1959, there was a song. Uh, so this was the first one that I did. And it was a song I didn't know. And I don't think it's a great song exactly, but it's by a guy named Lloyd Price called Personality. And, and listening to it, you get a sense of that moment, I think. I don't know for sure because it was a year before I was born, but it's worth listening to. And now I'm up into the 60s. And it turns out there's lots of guilty pleasures week after week after week, if you look at the charts, there's songs that, yeah, you know, are not really musical accomplishments exactly, but they're completely unstoppable in your brain. You know, Tommy James and the Shondells, the grassroots. I mean, there was that, there was a moment in there when people just knew how to write songs that you could not, uh, could not get out of your ear once it was there. And so I think that whole period of kind of white guys trying to make real hits in the 1960s is a sort of guilty pleasure of mine too. <laughs> I love it. Um, we're just about done here. I mean, it's been such a pleasure hanging out with you and, uh, first of all, hearing what you've been up to recently and especially with your uh, trip to Scotland and the, the fallout from that. I'm going to ask you one more question about that yep. before we, before we wrap up. And this has occurred to me many times over over the years, and uh, just kept popping up to me, uh, popping up to, with me a couple of times while we were speaking. We were talking a little bit about how the generation uh, of boomers, that many of whom were around 
in the 60s and were protesting against war, protesting against uh, um, the, 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 the racial divisions and just a whole generation that were called the counterculture. And we thought that mm. these were the people who were going to change the world. What happened? What <laughs> happened to those people who we are now trying to get back to, uh, you know, help, help us, you know, save our planet for, for the kids? Oddly enough, that's sort of the topic of my next book that'll be out in the spring, the subtitle of which is A Graying American Looks Back at His Suburban Boyhood and Wonders What the Hell Happened. Um, look, you know, a couple of things happened. One, Ronald Reagan happened and this sort of idea that you were supposed to look out for yourself above all and government was the problem, not the solution. And mass prosperity happened. I mean, you know, we were getting richer in the 60s and in the 70s, but then it just kept going and going and going. And people just started focusing on that. And I look around the suburb where I grew up, which seemed a perfectly affluent place then, and they've ripped down every house that was there and put one up that's twice the size. And at a certain point, something just some kind of momentum took over. And now we're realizing we got to put a break on that one way or another. And I, I, I hope that we're capable of doing it, of really, and that's the reason that one of the reasons why at this third act thing, um, music does seem so important to me because I think it's the way for people to really recapture some sense of who they were at a different point. There's a lot of research that shows that people's musical taste at some level, their deep emotional musical taste is what they heard when they were 18, 19, 20, 21, you know, that that's what locked into their heart and soul at some level. Right. And so, you, so, so, you, so your whole idea then is like, let's get back to these people with what got them going let's remember, in the first place. That's right. Let's remember, let's try and recapture some of the emotion mm -hmm. that not the set of ideas or whatever, that's hard. You can't, but there is some sense of who you were and what you were hoping for and, and what you thought the world was going to be like. My last question is usually after talking about music for 30 minutes, I like to say, so after hanging out and talking music, how are you feeling right now? And I'm going to ask you that question, but there's going to be one before it, which sort of tacks onto what you were just saying, which is, I mean, how do you feel right now about where we're at after what you saw in Scotland? after what you know to be the truth, after what, you know, years of writing have taught you about where we're at, how are you feeling right now about our uh, potential as, as, as a human race, I guess, to, to figure out how to work through this stuff? I think we're in the decade that's going to tell. Um, either we get our act together in the next eight years, that is, we spend the next eight years transforming our energy system so we're not burning coal and gas and oil and raising the temperature. It, it, and we can do that now because this sun and wind power is the cheapest power on earth. If we don't do that, if the fossil fuel industry delays us, I'm afraid then we're into a place where we're kind of, where things are sort of out of, completely out of control. We've already yeah. seen the Arctic melt. That's yeah. a bad sign, you know? So, so part of me is worried, very worried, scared all the time, but I, I don't try to dwell on it. I mean, my thought when I wake up in the morning is how much trouble can I cause the oil industry today? Nice. And then how do you feel about hanging out, talking about music for a little while? I like talking about music and I like it for the reasons we've been describing. 
it's one of the most congenial ways to think about our history because it allows us to recapture not only the kind of fact of moments past, but the feeling of moments past. So I think it's great to be thinking about music on the cutting edge, but I also think it's really useful to be thinking about the musics of our lifetime too. It's all about connections really at the end of the day, isn't it? And music does, that's exactly what music does. It connects the dots, it connects us together. And uh, Bill, it's been an absolute pleasure hanging out with you for the last 30, 40 minutes and uh, talking about important things and talking about a little bit of music as well. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. And thank you for all your work. I appreciate it, Bill. Bill McCabin. Thanks, man. Take care. Thanks for listening. The Sound of Success is produced by Elizabeth Thompson with myself, Nick Harcourt, for Spark Network. Our theme music is by Keita Klein. For more episodes, find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and at sparknetwork.com. 